sharing our faith and passion for the Lord Jesus Christ with others is a desire of Zion Christian Fellowship. Our prayer is that this message will have a lasting impact on your life and draw you closer to the Lord Jesus Christ. This message is not copyrighted. You are free to make copies for friends and neighbors. We only ask that you copy it in its entirety without alterations or changes. Now unto the King Eternal, Immortal, Invisible, the only wise God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Well, greetings in Jesus' name, everyone this morning. I've been very blessed this morning already, thinking of the things of God, finding our rest in God. Thank you, brother, for sharing there. and The songs we sang, it's been a blessing. So this morning for a message, I would like to continue what I preached the last time I was speaking, why we identify as Anabaptists, and this would be part two. I'm not sure that I have neatly divided it into two parts necessarily. We're going to go over some of what we covered the other time and and expand on it a bit. Why we identify as Anabaptists. And I'd like for you to turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Hebrews. And I'm going to draw out several passages throughout this book. And the passages we're going to look at have to do with warning us concerning our faith and the action we should take. They are, they are words of warning. In the first portion I'd like to look at is in chapter 2, Hebrews chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. It says, therefore, we ought to give the more earnest heed to the things which we have heard, lest at any time we should let them slip. For if the word spoken by angels was steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just recompense or reward, how shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed unto us by them that heard him? God also bearing them witness, both with signs and wonders and with diverse miracles and gifts of the Holy Ghost according to his own will. So here he cautions us that we ought to give the more earnest heed, lest, if by chance, we would let things slip. That is a danger common to man. To let things slip. Let's turn over to chapter 3 and verse 12 through 19. It says, Take heed, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. But exhort one another daily while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. For if we are made partakers of Christ, if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast unto the end, while it is said, Today, if ye will hear his voice, harden not your hearts, as in the provocation. For some, when they had heard, did provoke, howbeit not all that came out of Egypt by Moses. But with whom was he grieved forty years? Was it not with them that had sinned, whose carcasses fell in the wilderness? And to whom swear he that they should not enter into his rest, but to them that believe not? 
So we see that they could not enter in because of unbelief. It says here that we should beware, take heed, lest something happen to our heart, turning us to unbelief in departing from the living God, being at one place at one time and then moving to a different place. Further on in chapter 10, And verse 32. But call to remembrance the former days in which after ye were illuminated ye endured a great fight of afflictions, partly whilst ye were made a gazing stock, both by reproaches and afflictions, and partly whilst ye became companions of them that were so used. For ye had compassion of me in my bonds, and took joyfully the spoiling of your goods, Knowing in yourselves that ye have in heaven a better and an enduring substance, cast not away therefore your confidence which hath great recompense of reward. For ye have need of patience that after ye have done the will of God ye might receive the promise. For yet a little while, and he that shall come will come and will not tarry. Now the just shall live by faith, but if any man draw back, my soul shall have no pleasure in him. But we are not of them who draw back unto perdition, but of them that believe to the saving of the soul. So there we are not of them that draw back. And then turning over to chapter 12, verse 1 to 3. Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses... Let us lay aside every weight and the sin which doth so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself, lest ye be wearied, and faint in your minds. And then lastly, turning over to chapter 13, verse 20. And this is not a warning here, but rather an encouragement to us, a promise, where he says in verse 20, Now the God of peace that brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant, Make you perfect in every good work to do his will, working in you that which is well-pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Now, we looked at those words of warning. This last portion is rather one of encouragement. But there are... Two things that are common to man and especially to the believers in the whole New Testament era. And this is one of the reasons why we're looking at this matter of why we identify as Anabaptists. But the two things that are common to us, one is that we have a tendency to let things slip. That which we once had, we are tempted to let it go. And the second thing that we are faced with is that we have a tendency or a danger to be deceived by false teachings, um, be it false prophets who have false doctrines, but we should beware that we not stray from the faith because of wrong teaching or something that someone um, has brought our way or some wind of doctrine, we are to become mature in the faith. So those two dangers should make us alert. We should beware lest 
something slips from what we once had, or lest an evil heart in ourselves of unbelief rise up and we depart, we move away from where we once were. Now, as we think about identifying with Anabaptists, and particularly I'm thinking of the time era from 1525 and onward for several hundreds of years, sometimes known as the Anabaptist Reformation. Um, But as we will look at this morning, this was not something particularly new. It was something actually that they revived. And they saw it that way. They did not see themselves as establishing some new religion, some new philosophy, but rather a recovery of the original vision of the New Testament church. And so here we are about 500 years later, and in our day we need to also beware In what we're looking at today, we are taking a look back at those who have gone before and drawing some examples and some some sense that we identify with them because of what they stood for. As you noted in our memory work this morning, not everyone that says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom. There will be many in that day which say this. And in the end, he will say, depart from me, ye that work iniquity. And so it has been throughout all the ages of the church. There are those who claim, profess to be of Christ, but have strayed away from his teachings, his doctrines, from actually living a life that represents the truth in Christ. So again, we want to stand with those who embrace the truth. And not just in word, but also in deed, that we live the gospel that we profess. Now I mentioned the date 1525, and in Unless you make some intentional effort to recall that date, it will probably slip your mind. And a week from now and a month from now, if someone asks you, when did the Anabaptists live, you might, well, I'm not sure. Um, It's just one of those things that unless you put some purpose into remembering it, uh, it'll probably slip. But the date is not that, uh, not the uppermost thing. But it was a time that is generally known in Christendom as the time of the Reformation. That would be marked normally by the time when Martin Luther nailed what he called what was known as the 95 Thesis on the cathedral door. And this was a rather remarkable uh, move on Martin Luther's part. He noted 95 things of error, primarily error, in the Roman Catholic Church, which was kind of the predominant uh, prevailing church at that time. And what he wanted was reform. He wanted the church to be reformed to something that it ought to be. And one of his major themes was the just shall live by faith. Now, there were many good things that Martin Luther said and taught and did. But if you study the history of it, you will find that he was not willing in all things to make a clean break with the Roman Catholic Church. For example, the doctrine of baptism, he continued with the baptism of infants which the Anabaptists then rejected. He also continued the use of the sword, and that also the Anabaptists rejected, and 
So some of the things that Martin Luther stood for at one time and taught clearly, and such as the just living by faith and many good things that Martin Luther taught, he was not willing to make a clear break and a clear return to New Testament doctrine. And you will find as you read then that the things he once stood for also began to slip because he was not willing to embrace it all the way. There were men who were contemporaries there that followed with that Reformation, but they looked at the New Testament and decided that a much more radical change was needed to bring it back to what it was in the New Testament times. Now they had a good bit of historical precedent to do so, as they read the scriptures, of course, being their chief. um, They upheld the word of God as being the final authority on all things that deal with faith and following after God. So as we look at it historically, some might refer to this as the Radical Reformation. The Anabaptists would have been considered the radical side. The Reformers took it to a certain place, and they got, the Anabaptists got very radical and took it to a far different place. Um, Sometimes it was referred to as the Men of the Second Front, the Reformation being one front, the Anabaptists being a second front. What we're going to look at today in trying to understand who the Anabaptists were and why they believed what they did, I'm following a bit of the outline of a book called The Reformers and Their Stepchildren. It is a record of that Anabaptist um, movement there in 1525 and following. And he names the different chapters of the book. The man's name who wrote it, I think, was Leonard Verduin. Not sure how to pronounce that name, but he has, in eight different chapters, he named, he uses names that these Anabaptists were known for. Anabaptists being one of them, one of the eight. And he said it's interesting that these names were generally derogatory, and they, but they were a reflection of what people saw as they looked at these people. And they gave them names because they were breaking away from the, what was known as the church. And so as they attempted to correct some of the errors in the Roman Catholic Church, and make a very clean break and worship in a different way, they got these kind of nicknames, derogatory names, uh, as people tried to put them in a category. Now in all of these, the, uh, the term heretic would have been probably foremost. Just they're heretics. They, they believe something different. They're going a different way, which... In a sense, they were. They were heretics. They um, were heretics according to the common uh, society in their age, but they were not heretics according to the faith. One of them, I believe it was Hubmeyer, when he was before the court and was being accused of being a heretic, he made a statement to this effect. He said, I may be wrong. I'm just a man, I may err as a human, but a heretic I cannot be because I strive always to have my life guided by the word of God. And so he rejected the accusation of heresy. Um, And the Apostle Paul himself, when he was on trial, he um, he said after... 
uh, the manner that my fellow kinsmen call heresy, so worship I God. And he went on to express what the true faith was. Now, prior to this time era that we're speaking of, there were many other righteous men and righteous movements. They were sometimes known as the Waldensians. And they were very numerous in some times, some years, and areas for about 300 years prior to this. So about the years uh, from 1200 and onward, I don't remember the exact year that Peter Waldo, who was a prominent leader, and gave the name then to those known as Waldensians. Sometimes they were called the poor men of Lyons. Lyons being a French city. And these men were noted as being poor, poor in this world's goods, primarily because they, well, for two reasons, they shunned worldly things, but they also were very free to give of their earthly goods and share with those who had need. And for that reason, they were all often considered poor. And sometimes... Um, that name was given to those who rejected the Catholic faith and were considered heretics. They were just called, oh, they're, they're the poor men of lions. Why? Because they followed after similar doctrines to these men who were poor. And so of the Waldensians, there were numerous places and times uh, those who have studied it say they are. There were primarily three different uh, divisions, or so on, for the Waldensians. They didn't all believe the exact same thing, and and it changed over the course of three hundred years, as you might imagine. Some stayed more with one direction. Most of them were non-resistant, but one of the three of the major divisions there did not uh, shun the use of the sword. So now when we come to the year 1525, when the Swiss brethren began, as they began to practice a believer's baptism and a New Testament church, they were building on a foundation, first of all, from the scriptures and from the early church and the apostles, and but they also had precedent down through the years, those who uh, followed the Lord. Now looking at these names that were cast in their face many times, kind of a derogatory terms, and um, we'll look at them, and most of them, are in a different language than we are accustomed to using. So some of these, uh, some of these may be hard to pronounce. But the first name, they were widely known as Donatistan or Donatists. Now, in that day, the Donatists were thought of as a rebellious group that went actually back to the 4th century, and it was commonly known as the Donatist Rebellion. And here, what, more than a thousand years later, these people were just kind of derogatorily called Donatists, like the rebels back, you know, 1,200 years before. Well, what, what were the Donatists? What, what did they believe? Well, we have to look at a bit of the history of that day and understand the change that came to what was called the church. From the time of Christ and the apostles and onward, as the gospel spread throughout the whole world and missionaries went and churches were established, they followed the teachings of Christ. 
And among the teachings of Christ was they shunned the use of the sword. They taught and believed a changed life. A life that is changed from one of wickedness to one of righteousness. The new birth that Jesus spoke of. That is what constitutes the true church. And and then in 312 A.D., we have the Roman Emperor Constantine who converted to Christianity, or he claimed to have converted to Christianity. Now, the historical record would suggest that it was uh, not a true saving faith because he did not follow all the teachings of Christ. But the major shift that came in that time was that he then was favorable to Christianity and the persecution stopped. And all the times up till then, the Christians had been hated and bitterly persecuted primarily by the emperors of Rome. Each succeeding emperor, some were a little more tolerant and others were very, um, very evil and cruel. But Constantine, he professed to be converted, and he saw this sign in the sky, and he said he took this sign to be uh, his call to conquer in the name of Christ. Now what really happened there is that the, what we think of as the secular state was joined with the religious, and thus was a hybrid brought about, where now the emperor is favorable to Christianity. And not only does he stop the persecution of Christians, but he also, uh, and this was not necessarily immediate, but gradually it became a shift to where the church, so-called, took up the sword and began to coerce men into the kingdom. And that's what we know as a hybrid. They, they brought the two together. Now, we have to understand a little bit more of history, though, to understand what's really going on here. If you look back at the Old Testament era, there was the people of God... And there was the Gentiles, the the heathen. And the people of God were a people group. Everyone that was of the children of Israel was of God's people. Now, we know, of course, that there were wicked ones and there were righteous ones and the wicked were judged and the righteous were praised and God called them to repentance, and he sent the prophets. But the king had the right to coerce men into righteousness. In other words, when the king was righteous, he would destroy the altars, he would punish the wicked, those who had forsaken God, and those who practiced evil things, uh, they could be punished. In other words, it was, a, it was a society composed of all of God's people. Everyone there was expected to be of God's people. And then there was the heathen out there, the, the Gentiles. Well, when Christ came, he instituted something new. And that was that he brought the gospel, the good news of salvation. And the door was open for the Gentiles, those heathen out there, to now be called a part of the children of God. And you see that clearly spelled out in the New Testament, how that he has broken down that middle wall of partition between the Jew and the Gentile. He calls all to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, to salvation in Christ. And as the apostles clearly taught, that God is no respecter of persons, but in every nation he that feareth God and worketh righteousness is accepted of him. And we can be so grateful 
because all of us, by lineage, were not of God's people. We were the heathen. We were the Gentiles. We have been grafted into the tree. And now we are made partakers. And we can be united with Christ. We can be receiving the inheritance So along comes Constantine, and he reverts back to a society where it is expected that everyone in the society is now righteous. And the true believers saw that as a clear corruption of New Testament Christianity, because they said, That when Christ came and all the things that he taught in the New Testament church be established, it was accepted that there would be two classes of people that would live side by side harmoniously, somewhat harmoniously. And that is there are the unrighteous, which are not following God, and there is the righteous, and they are a called out people. They are the ecclesia, the church. They are the church, the called out ones, who have voluntarily taken up the cross and followed Christ. And they would live in the society, in the world, but not of the world. Now that was very different than the Old Testament era. And the New Testament church had a clear vision of that. They knew that in every nation he that feareth God and worketh righteousness is accepted of him. But it is a voluntary entrance into the kingdom. And it is marked by an actual change of life where you have been born again. You have been born from above. And no longer is it just a complete group of people composing God's people and and everyone out there is not of God, but rather now there is God's people who are scattered amongst the peoples of the earth and that there are two kingdoms. There is the kingdom of God, those who voluntarily enter in, those who have been changed, and there are the unrighteous, those who have not been changed. And they are governed by other rulers, the rulers who govern the society, who maintain order. And Paul taught very clearly that we as God's people living in these societies are to be subject to these rulers. Even though they don't know the faith, they don't follow God, but they do have the right to maintain order in society for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of them that do well. There was somewhat of a dual society. But Constantine changed that. In time, it was thought now that since righteousness is expected, everyone is required to be a Christian. And it's said that he took his army down to the river and baptized them all. Now they're Christian. They've been baptized, even though there was no change of life. Whether they actually embraced Christianity or not, they were all baptized indiscriminately. Because now this is their, you know, he wanted them all baptized. And so that became a great rift if you will, as the main line kind of shifted to that thinking. And now the church became all the people in a given locality. They were part of the church. And from the time of Constantine onward, they began to build great cathedrals and and massive meeting houses. Now, they had meeting houses before that. But they were quite modest and very simple and basic. But in Constantine's day, to promote Christianity, 
they began to build these great cathedrals, massive, impressive buildings. And Catholicism still follows that tradition to this day. When we were in Bolivia, you could go back through the dirt roads for miles and miles, and you'd come to this little village. And in the middle of this village, where Catholicism rules, you would find fairly simple and modest houses throughout, and then you get to the middle of town, and here is this enormous cathedral that is just vastly, vastly more than anything that other people dwell in. And that was kind of the mindset. You make this big cathedral. Okay, now I'm getting back to defining what the Donatists were. The Donatists rebelled against that change in the church as the church became known. This blending together of the secular arm of the state and the church and the concept that everyone in a given locality is now in the church. And you can see what happened there is that the requirement that a man must voluntarily enter into the kingdom and that in, in order to do that he must be born again, that all got watered down. The Donatists said, no, we will not go along with that. We continue to believe in a separation of church and state. They had a two-kingdom concept. The concept that these two kingdoms run, if you will, parallel, or that we are in the world but not of the world, and that we are a separate kingdom while living amongst any of the nations of the earth. And that in every nation, he that feareth God and worketh righteousness is accepted of him. And they saw that Constantine hybrid as a, a grievous error that was leading the church away from the New Testament concept. So, the Donatists were viewed as rebels. They did not go along with the church order. And they were hated as heretics and cast out and persecuted. And yes, even the church now is persecuting the heretics. Because the church had taken up the sword and now by coercion and force was requiring men to be in the kingdom. If they lived in a certain locality... They were required to be part of the, the church. The Donatists said no. And so, 1,200 years later, these Anabaptists, as they were often known, were also called, oh, Donatists. They're part of those that rebel group from way back then. It's never been completely stamped out. They're still adhering to that and just that name being thrown out, if you understood what the Donatists were, what they stood for, you see very quickly that what was at the root here is the two-kingdom concept. The idea that there is a kingdom that you, of God that you enter into voluntarily by a change of life, and then there is the world, and that those two kingdoms don't go together. The second name that they were frequently called was uh, Stobler, and that was a German term. Stobler meant a, a stick or a little staff, uh, much like what a shepherd would carry. Uh, and it, it gave the concept of a, of a shepherd or, or a little a little stick or a staff, a shepherd's staff. The reason that men carried that was in contrast to the sword. It was commonly uh, known that men would carry a sword. 
to protect themselves and to be, yeah, whatever you use a sword for. Uh, these men, by contrast, carried a, a harmless little wooden stick. And this actually was not just in the 1500s, but it was also known in prior history in various regions. Uh, even some of the Waldensians carried this little staff, the little stick. And it was a symbol. I, I'm not exactly sure. It's a little hard for me to understand exactly were they always intentionally carrying it as a symbol, but it was clearly understood to be in contrast to the sword. Oh, they're one of the stoblers there. They, they carry that little stick. Now, when we think of the sword or nonviolence or we don't want to use violence, we think of it in context of going to war and those kind of things. Well, that certainly was part of it. But a greater part of what they were doing in rejecting the sword was this whole concept that the sword is used to force people into the kingdom. Now, we are very far removed from that because we have enjoyed, actually, the, the result of this principle being accepted throughout society, that there is a separation of church and state. That was what the Anabaptists really uh, championed, if you will, or, or insisted on that there is a difference between the church and the state. And the state shall not have any say or jurisdiction in what constitutes righteousness or what is right in the church. They have their realm in society to maintain order, and the church has their responsibility, and there are two kingdoms. And the one does not have jurisdiction over the other. So when they walked around with a little staff instead of a sword, one of the, the very prominent things that they were saying is that the kingdom of God is voluntary. You enter in voluntarily. You are not forced into it. But the reality was that they were hated because of that and often brought before the magistrates and charged with all these crimes of sedition and heresy and so on, and then they would be punished unto death because of their belief. And they strongly would speak against that very concept. It is not right for you to put people to death because of what they choose to believe. And so... We today, in the United States, have a constitution that says explicitly that the government shall not make regulations concerning religion, nor shall it prohibit the free exercise thereof. Now, that has been um, corrupted. The, the constitution specifically states freedom of religion, well, in today's society, they have uh, kind of militantly claimed that would mean freedom from religion, meaning that anything that sounds like religion or sounds like God, we want to reject. Well, that was not the original idea or the concept. The concept was that there should be a peaceable society that can can tolerate the concept of those who practice a religion living peaceably beside those who do not choose to follow that religion. Uh, you could take prayer in the schools, for instance, that, were, that was uh, forbidden many years ago. Well, that was because they took the thought of freedom of religion and made it freedom from religion. Now, what the original thought there would have been that if they choose to pray, 
A teacher, for example, would be free to pray, but it would be wrong for that teacher to force everyone to pray or to punish those who choose not to pray. That would not be, that would be a violation of the original intent there. And so, this carrying of a little staff, I think you can understand, but it was, again, talking about the two kingdom concept and this dual society where there's the righteous and the unrighteous. Okay, the third name, uh, Catharer. And this word meant the cleansed. That's interesting. These people who claim to be cleansed. And again, kind of derogatorily, oh, they, they think everyone has to be, you know, cleansed. Well, yes, <laughs> that is what the New Testament says. It's what the scripture says. But as you see there, where the concept was that everyone in a given region was required to be in the church, that whole concept that some should be cleansed or others not, and the, and the difference between those who served God and served him not, is, is lost. It's all, there's kind of a, uh, just a, a watering down of the whole thought of a person needing to be cleansed. But these people actually believed that a person needed to be cleansed, washed from his filthiness. And so, oh, they're the, those people that think you have to be cleansed. The next name they were called, uh, Sacrament Schwarmer. That's one of those German words that crams a whole lot into one, one long word. Uh, but the basic concept there was simply the preaching of the gospel. And again, contrasting with the concept that everyone in a given region is in the church, they've been baptized as infants, so they're, they're Christian. Okay, so preaching the gospel is no longer needed. But in the New Testament, they went out everywhere as evangelists appealing to men to enter into the kingdom. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, for the remission of sins. And there was added to the church daily such as should be saved. And they went everywhere preaching the gospel. Well, that was lost in that day. And so these men believed that it was important to preach the gospel, to evangelize, to go out and proclaim the message of the gospel and appeal to men to be saved. And so, oh yeah, those people, those who think you have to go around preaching the gospel, oh, one of them. The next name they were called was Winkler. And again, kind of a German term that means... Uh, in a corner, or an out-of-the-way place. Oh, well, because these people didn't go along with the church, they didn't attend the cathedral, they didn't go there every Sunday to be present there as a representation that they were with the program, they're, they're of the Christian nation here. You were required to go to the cathedral, to the, to the worship house every Sunday. Well, they weren't welcome there, of course, and they had a different doctrine and were trying to establish New Testament faith, and so they met in out-of-the-way places. They were hunted and hated, and so they would meet in corners here and there. And there was a term also used uh, called hedge preaching. Hedge having the concept, not necessarily of a row of shrubs, nicely trimmed, but it meant out in the in the uh, countryside, out where the hedges were, out where the fields and the, and the borders of the fields, they would be out there is where they would gather and worship. And so they were, or 
maybe conduct their evangelistic messages out where the where the people were working. And they was they were called hedge preachers or hedge hedge people. But the concept there was was exactly this of being in a corner or an out of the way place. And so, oh, one of them. Next one that he lists here is the Wiedertaufer or the Anabaptist, again baptized. And we've looked at that and kind of that's the name that has stuck through the years. We'll just pass over that one to the next one. Number seven, they were called Communisten or Communist, Community of Goods. Now, some of them actually did practice community of goods. Uh, There arose in the 1550s, I believe it was, maybe 1540s, I'm not sure, the man named Jacob Hutter, who taught this community of goods, and those people eventually became known as the Hutterites, but they lived and taught a community of goods, actually having their goods in common. Now that uh, more extreme, perhaps you would say, um, uh, literal fulfillment of community of goods, not, not all of the Anabaptists did that, by far not all of them, But it was true that they did believe in sharing of their goods, particularly for those in need, the poor, the hungry, those destitute of clothing. Um, If you recall even our hymn that was penned by Menno Simons, um, kind of slips my mind at the moment, but feed the hungry and the true evangelical faith. You know, it feeds the hungry, clothes the naked, and and so on. That's what the people were known for. That, that freely uh, sharing of their goods, even though not all of them had a literal community of goods, they were known as, um, oh, those communists, they're, they're the, the communists. Well, it shows you two things. One, the generosity of the people and their willingness to share. And two, the commonality and identity with that that group. Even if they weren't what we would think of now as followers of Jacob Hutter or Hutterites, they were still in general known as people who shared with their earthly goods. And then the last one, number eight, is... uh, a Rotengeister. And that name, that word, means literally a clique or a faction or a sect. Now, the Apostle Paul was accused of being of that sect of the Nazarenes. You know, that, those, those Christ followers. And he didn't, uh, he didn't necessarily reject that. He just uh, expounded on what that means. And so a Rotengeister was one who, you know, who formed or was supportive of a clique or a faction or a sect. And while that was a derogatory term, and of course in the context it's like one who creates a division. And they would look at the New Testament and say, well, you know, it's the New Testament is clear, those who cause divisions, they're heretics, they whatever. Well, these people actually believed in a true faith. And the fact that they got this nickname and this kind of derogatory term shows that they did believe in a united group, a a brotherhood, 
they would have called it, the believers would have called it a brotherhood. This is the New Testament church. We are the people. We are, we are those who are a part of God's people. And so they, they had these terms. Now each of these terms, all eight of them, are somewhat connected and interrelated and each of them in turn shows a little bit different aspect of what these people believed. Now it is true that as these names were given out and cast in their face, it would have probably been applied to anyone who turned away from the Roman Catholic Church regardless of how true or correct their beliefs or practices may have been. So, you can't look at everyone who got the name Anabaptist and say that they were for sure all of the true faith, because there was a lot of variations, and there was differences of belief, and, and they weren't all of one mind. And yet there was unifying themes and and the local bodies and groups were of one mind and of one heart. That's what they were striving for. And they had to labor mightily, even unto blood. They had to resist unto blood to stand for their faith. And so It's a bit difficult for us to identify in that sense because, as he says in Hebrews, ye have not yet resisted unto blood. You know, striving against sin. In one sense, that poses a danger for us because we can kind of just casually coast along. You can choose baptism or you can set it aside. It's not It's not a matter of life and death, we think. And as far as the secular authorities are concerned, it isn't. I mean, they're indifferent to whether we get baptized or not. Um, But we should not treat it indifferently. We should be concerned about those things. And and even all of these things... um, Most of these, when we're living in a society where everything is is tolerated, or was, true righteousness has less and less tolerance as time goes on. Um, But for the most part, we're, we're very comfortable with the concept that there's a separation of church and state. We, it's not something we have to uh, you know, challenge our neighbors for, nor are we hauled into court and demanded to give an answer why we are of these people who meet in the corner, uh, you know, off in an out-of-the-way place. Um, we're not put on trial for heresy, uh, departing from the Orthodox. We're not put on trial because we didn't come to the cathedral But what is incumbent upon us today is to make sure and to think deeply about what the true faith is, what constitutes a New Testament church, and to strive for it in the the dangers and the enemies that oppose us, lest at any time we should let them slip. We don't want to let them slip. We don't want to be of them who draw back. We don't want to be of them who somehow, through the deceitfulness of sin, have drifted away from God. And that's true in, you know, in our personal life, the things we strive for. You know, in 30 days, it's pretty easy to let things slip. But what about three years? And what about a church in 30 years? It is possible to let things slip. 
And the warning there uh, for all of us is not to let those things slip, not to depart from the faith, not to walk away from what we once were, but to embrace the true evangelical faith, as, uh, as Menno Simon said. And as these men who gave their life for what they believed, they would have said, it's, it's important. It's important to try to strive for the true faith. May the Lord bless with that.